I'm going to ask you to drop down to verse 8. And for the reading of God's Word, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and I'm going to ask you to please stand with me, if you would, for the reading of God's Word. Sorry, did I say Galatians? Galatians 4, verse 8. Finally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel or messenger of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. I know a number of you were able to be away and travel last week. We had the opportunity, Julie and I, to minister to our parents and use our children's ski week to go down and also celebrate my mom's 80th birthday. We're so thankful to the Lord that He's given us the opportunity to honor our parents and to minister to them in that way. Um, Thank you for your prayers. This morning we have the privilege and joy of having our brother Chris Choice and partner in the gospel from New Life coming to give us the word. Uh, Chris needs no introduction. You know him well. You know our brothers at New Life well. And so uh, please welcome him, a brother in Christ, a partner in the gospel, and let's prepare our hearts to receive what Jesus has for us this morning through Chris and through his word in Galatians. Pastor Mark and all of you at Lighthouse, it is always a joy to be here to be able to fellowship with you and to bring God's Word to you. Uh, You guys really do feel like a second community, a second church, no uh, stranger to us at all at New Life. Have you ever been betrayed by someone close to you? Have you ever spent years enjoying a close friendship only for them to turn their back on you and accuse you of wrongdoing. Even worse, consider this scenario between a mother and her teenage son. He's angrily storming about the house, yelling at his mom, you don't know anything. I'll live my own life. You're always just telling me what to do. And in despair, she cries, what are you talking about, son? I've always loved you. Everything I've said was out of love for you. I've sacrificed everything for you. All I want is the best for you. Can't you see that? What more can I do? 
and he heads out the door, he scoffs at her, saying, Right, you love me. Then how come it's my friends who accept me for who I am? They don't care what I do, and neither should you. And he slams the door behind him, leaving his mom in tears. How is it possible to be so betrayed when in the past you were beloved? How would you feel in that situation? And new life, we've had the joy of studying through the book of Galatians during our Sunday services. And I'm excited to bring your attention to one particular passage from that series. It is what Pastor Mark had just read. It is past the midpoint of the book of Galatians. And throughout this book, the Apostle Paul has been focused on the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. He has pointed to his apostolic authority and his testimony to argue that salvation has always been this way. And then he answers some theological objections in chapter 3 by explaining the role and the importance of the law. Now at this point in chapter 4, all of his doctrinal arguments culminated with the illustration that Christians are no longer slaves to the law, but they are now sons of God. And that's what you can read in the beginning of chapter 4. And as we consider our passage for today, and a little bit further along in chapter 4, you then get the sense that Paul feels some desperation. He has argued for so much in the first three chapters. He defended his life and his ministry from the accusation of his attackers, and he's explained in detail how his teaching of grace is biblically correct. Throughout, he said things to the Galatians like, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? This is just like the wayward son's mother, upset that he is leaving the family, turning his back on everything she taught him. And now, while it can be true that our earthly parents are never perfect, they may give us reason to react like this son in my illustration, what you see from Paul is a behavior that was nothing like our imperfect parents. He had genuinely and truthfully loved the Galatians and taught them the truth. But now, the Galatians were turning their back on him. The Judaizers in their midst were false teachers causing confusion and chaos. They attacked Paul's credentials, they attacked his reputation, and then they attacked the doctrine of salvation. They claimed that Christians need to live by the Jewish laws in order to be saved. So the Galatians listened to the Judaizers and they were swayed by their arguments. They began questioning Paul. They were wondering if he led them astray by focusing on grace instead of the Jewish law. So just like the wayward son, the Galatian churches turned their back on Paul and followed after the false teachers. In our passage for today, you will see Paul's emotional plea to the Galatian churches. 
He has already spent so much time arguing for the truth that now he can't help but show his hurting heart and his deep affection for them. You see, the root issue is that the Galatians didn't love the truth of God. They were so easily swayed by the false teachers claiming that Paul's teachings weren't true. But if the Galatians could know how to correctly love the truth, then they wouldn't have turned their backs on Paul and put their salvation in jeopardy. So in the same way, you will discover four ways to love the truth from our passage. There are people in your lives who love you and are telling you God's truth. And so with the lessons from today's sermon, you don't have to make the same mistakes that the Galatians made. They were confusing truth with lies and turning their backs on those who genuinely love them. Turn with me in your Bibles to today's passage, if you're not there already, Galatians 4. And the passage we'll be reading from is just verses 12 to 20. Paul's emotional plea is captured in this passage, and I'll be reading from the NASB translation. Again, let's read verses 12 to 20. Paul writes there saying, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. But you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Again, up to this point, Paul has been arguing like a lawyer in court. He's been debating like a scholar and a theologian. But in this passage, Paul finally changes his attitude and he reveals his emotional heart. He speaks now like a loving parent like a close friend. He starts this passage by saying, I beg of you, brethren. He pleads with them, using the same word that is often used to describe our prayers to God. And he calls them brethren, focusing on the hope that they are still genuine believers, but merely deceived for the time being by the false teachers. He shifts his tone so much that this entire passage, it doesn't contain any doctrinal corrections about salvation being by grace alone. Paul has become exhausted at this point. This passage is like him taking a breath before continuing with his doctrinal arguments in the rest of chapter 4 and onward. Have you perhaps ever felt this way when you were speaking with a close friend or a family member, perhaps a parent or a sibling? You've argued with them at length over right and wrong. You see them heading in the wrong direction, about to make a terrible mistake. And you've done all that you can 
to correct them. You've spent hours on the phone. You've written them lengthy emails, and yet they still won't listen. You just don't know what else to say or do. They're turning their back on you, and all you can say is just, "Please, dear friend, listen to me. Have I ever done you harm?" What follows from verse 12 to verse 14, and some of verse 15, is Paul's recollection of their time and ministry together in the past. He first summarizes this in the rest of verse 12. His plea is that they would become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. Now the grammar there is a little odd, but the principle and the concept he's referring to is their unity. Namely, their unity in the gospel. This describes the first way to love the truth, and that is to love and unite over the most important truth of all, the gospel. Let the gospel break down the walls of ethnicity and of culture. Let the gospel break down the walls of age and socioeconomic status, because when you realize what the gospel truly means. And what it truly does, then you realize that there is unity among everyone who believes in the gospel. It's a unity that far surpasses doctrinal agreement, but instead it reaches into social life and personal relationships. You see, when Paul first arrived at the Galatian cities, his main goal was to preach the gospel. This is why the end of verse thirteen describes his encounter with them as one where he preached the gospel. His encounter isn't summarized by him teaching them how to make good decisions in their career or their families. It wasn't him organizing ministries so that they could start up a youth group or a Sunday school. It wasn't even him spearheading social justice efforts. Paul's main goal was summarized by one action: preaching the gospel. This is obviously not to say that making good life decisions, having multiple church ministries, or serving the society are bad things, but they cannot be mistaken for the top priority of preaching the gospel. It is only the gospel that can truly unite people and break down barriers that would otherwise stand in place. In Paul's situation with the Galatians. He had apparently went their way because of a bodily illness that afflicted him. Now, this detail about the bodily illness is actually not repeated elsewhere in Scripture, even in Acts thirteen and fourteen, which document Paul's missionary journey to the Galatian region. There's no mention of this illness, and so we're left in dark about its specifics. Some say that this is an ongoing illness, perhaps what Paul referred to elsewhere as the thorn in his flesh. Some say that it was an eye disease, since he would later say in verse 15 how the Galatians were actually willing to pluck out their eyes for him. And yet others say that he came down with malaria while walking through the swampy regions of Galatia, prompting him to navigate to higher regions, higher elevations, where their cities were actually located. All this to say, the type of illness is not important. It is the effects of the illness. That were important. You see, in verse fourteen, that this illness was apparently a trial to the Galatians. It was something that a normal human being 
would have despised or loathed. It was challenging for the Galatians to look past his unsightly disease and listen to his teachings. This is why it was actually so astonishing that they had received him as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. And you see in verse 15 that Paul alludes they even considered it a blessing to have him with them. The Galatians were able to see past his unsightly disease, and they actually loved having him there. These are some pretty strong words that Paul uses to describe his sense of love and acceptance. Have you ever felt like you belonged or maybe that you were wanted? Well, at best, it would pale in comparison to being treated like an angel or like Christ himself. On the other hand, we're all probably familiar with our pre-college days where cliques and labels ran rampant. You know, you wanted to fit in with the popular kids. You wanted to break into the group of the cool kids, be accepted by them. But too often, you were restricted by how you looked, how you dressed, how smart you were, or how well-behaved you were. If you wanted to belong to a certain group of people, then you needed to have the perfect combination of those traits. But what you see with the Galatian churches and Paul is that they united over the gospel. Physical ailments and unsightly illnesses were just some examples of the walls that the gospel broke through. Paul had spoken on this very topic back at the end of Galatians chapter 3, not too long ago from our passage for today. And there he had written, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel message teaches that we are all sinful and deserving of God's eternal wrath and punishment. The gospel message teaches that we all need to trust in Christ's righteous life and death as the substitutes for our own. No matter your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, or your gender, you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is true unity. That is how Paul became like the Galatians. They were all alike under the message of the gospel. And yet that is also how Paul begs them to become like him again, because they needed to return to that message of the gospel they had been departing from. So when you think about what you have in common with others here at church, what comes to mind? For most of you, it might be ethnicity. Similarly, you might say socioeconomic status or a level of education that you expect from others. Or maybe another commonality is your age. But what happens when you're out evangelizing? and you see an elderly Indian man sitting on a bench with an empty seat next to him. Does he deserve the gospel? What happens when the unmarried Hispanic woman walks into church with disheveled clothes? Will you welcome her just the same? Will you be excited for the opportunity that she might join your midweek Bible study? 
Or have you already decided that only Asian Americans in their 20s and 30s belong at your church? It is true that you might understand someone better when you share things in common, like ethnicity, educational background, and age. And it's also true that churches should focus their ministries on their strengths. But none of these things permit you to build up walls toward the people God has already placed in your path. The Galatians loved the truth so much that they were able to see past Paul's loathsome and despicable illness. They saw the gospel message that Paul brought and they loved him for it, regardless of how many social or physical differences stood in their way. And this now brings us to the wider principle, which is found in verses 15 and 16. We focused first on the gospel message and the unity that it should bring. Now we broaden our horizon to embrace all of God's truth because it is God's truth. This is our second way to love the truth from this passage. Embrace the truth. Read again with me verses 15 and 16. Paul continues writing by saying, Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth. We've already talked a bit about how the Galatians loved Paul and revered him. Here in verses 15 and 16, you see more detail about it. He testifies at the end of verse 15, they would have plucked out their eyes and given them to him. And again, some commentators think that this is alluding to an eye disease that Paul had, but it could also just as likely be a figure of speech, not meant to be taken literally. Eye transplants were far from a medical norm at that time, so it's inconclusive exactly what Paul is referring to here. But whatever it may be, it's clear that the Galatians were willing to sacrifice so much to care for Paul. They would go the extra mile to help Paul in whatever he needed. In our day and age, this extent of love and care for your church leaders or your spiritual mentors could look similar, but it's probably not going to be eye donation, if I had to take a guess. More likely, this type of care expresses itself in smaller ways. Uh, Perhaps for those parents who just gave birth, the commonly used meal train is a great way to provide food to the busy family. Or on other times, you could pay the bill for their meal or give a gift to meet one of their needs. I still remember when one of my past small groups bought me a water boiler. It was a very simple but a thoughtful gift that benefited me and also benefited them. And perhaps... There's a favor similarly that they need from you. Maybe it's needing a ride, borrowing a car, troubleshooting some kind of technical problem. With all these examples in mind, consider that the Galatians were so eager to meet all of these needs for Paul. He was such a dear friend to them that they would have happily volunteered or given whatever he needed. So the irony is that the Galatians revered Paul in the first place because he brought them the truth of the gospel. But now, after the false teachers infiltrated their midst and Paul has to work at correcting them, 
the Galatians viewed Paul with doubt and scorn. He says in verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? So apparently, teaching the gospel truth had first made Paul into a revered friend. But then it also later made Paul into a distrusted enemy. How ironic is that? How could hearing and receiving the same truth result in drastically different results? One main reason is that the false teachers were casting doubt on Paul. He wasn't there in person to fend off his attackers. So it resulted in the Galatians questioning Paul's motives and his intentions. And we're going to talk about this in our third point, so we won't focus on that distinction quite yet. But another main reason for the drastically different results is that Paul's initial teaching of truth was now being tested by the false teachers. When the Galatians had first heard the gospel, they didn't really have anything to compare it to. The false teachers weren't there yet to kind of sweep them up and lead them astray. Do you remember when you first heard the message of free forgiveness for your sins? Do you remember when you first heard that God gives you eternal life because he's gracious, not because you've earned it? No matter how messed up your life was, no matter how many mistakes you've made or how many relationships you've ruined, God loves you and forgives you. That's some amazing news. And it's no wonder that the Galatians loved Paul for delivering that message in the first place. But then Paul went away. He went to a different city. False teachers moved in. They started casting these seeds of doubt. They started saying things like, wait, what? You you really think God doesn't care about his Old Testament law? You really think God would accept people with such immoral lives? Surely that couldn't be the message that Paul taught you. I mean, if it was, then maybe Paul got it wrong. He forgot to tell you that God still cares about the Old Testament law, that you still need to live by it. So with all that doubt and suspicion... On Paul, the Galatians viewed him less as a friend and more as an enemy. He didn't tell them the whole truth. He was leading them astray. He took their love and care and then gave them a message that they didn't like to hear. You see, when the truth of the Bible was tested against the false teachings of the Judaizers, the Galatians realized that they liked the false teachings more. It made sense to them. It sounded better. The truth that it had at first been accepted as good doctrine was cast aside when it came time to test it and apply it. Haven't we all behaved this way towards our parents before? I know my parents told me to protect my eyes by not playing video games so much, especially in the dark. But when those first Game Boys came out, And may I remind you, those first Game Boys did not have a backlight. I needed to be the greatest Pokemon master. So I would smuggle a flashlight under my blankets and play just a little more. I would wake up at 4 a.m., sneak out to the living room, and turn on our PlayStation. And if anyone were to ask me at that time, was any of that healthy for my eyes? I would tell them I agree with my parents. It's not healthy for my eyes. 
But when I had a video game to play, when I had a next level to beat, and my parents restricted my playtime to only half an hour a day, well, that's when my actions showed that I disagreed with my parents. Becoming a Pokemon master all of a sudden tested the truth that I knew it challenged my application of that truth. And now today I need to wear contacts. So what I could agree intellectually with wasn't something I wanted to agree with in action. When you consider what this means for you today, you have to realize that our American Christianity tends to struggle with the opposite of the Galatians. They found it hard to believe that Christianity didn't have a list of rules and prohibitions as robust as the Old Testament law. We, on the other hand, often find it hard to believe that Christianity would have any list of rules or prohibitions at all. So you often take the doctrine of grace so far that any mention of holy living, the high cost of discipleship, or choosing wisely in the Christian liberties suddenly becomes labeled as legalistic. You see, on the one hand, you are no longer a slave to the law. That truth was hard for the Galatians to swallow. And certainly, at times, it is hard for us to swallow as well. But on the other hand, you are also now a slave to Christ, a slave to righteousness. And that truth is more often hard for us to swallow. See, you can nod your head when the preacher says that sexual immorality is bad. You can agree that you must flee from sexual temptation. But now you find Pastor Mark telling you that you need to break up with your non-Christian girlfriend. Now you see him telling you to dress a little bit more modestly, to spend less time around those who dress immodestly. Well, that's legalistic. You can nod your head when the preacher quotes 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. But now Ted speaks to you directly and personally, asking if you genuinely and truthfully share the Christian faith. He's showing you how your decisions and your statements are unaligned with the Christian faith. Well, that's being insensitive. That's not caring. Or you can nod your head when the preacher talks about idols in family relationships. But now Peter asks you personally if you idolize your parents so much that it's actually straining your marriage or putting you in financial risk. Now he's asking you to consider if you idolize your child's convenience, comfort, or sleep schedule. Well, those questions are stepping over the line. That's being ungracious. You see, when the Bible teacher tries to apply the truth into your life by speaking to you directly, all of a sudden, you consider him as an enemy, no longer a friend. Why is it that you can so easily accept the truth when it is preached corporately, but then it becomes so much harder when someone comes alongside you, sits down with you, and tries to apply it to your life? As Paul asked, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? If you embrace the truth because it is God's truth, 
then you will have a much easier time embracing the one who told you the truth. So in those moments when you feel challenged or attacked by someone, pause and take a deep breath. And then you ask yourself these questions. Is there biblical truth in anything this person just said? Do I understand how that biblical truth is applied to my situation? Note that it's not necessarily do I agree with how it is applied, but do I at least understand? Is there any detail about my situation that would help explain my behavior? And again, note note that this is not necessarily to defend your behavior, but to explain your behavior. And if you can recognize the answer to those questions, but you still feel attacked, then I highly encourage you to take some more time to think about it, write out your thoughts, and then answer these questions. Am I resisting biblical truth applied to my life? Do I feel attacked because that person spoke wrong doctrine to me? Answering these questions will help you navigate your natural tendency to reject the truth and to view your brothers and sisters as enemies. I know a common objection that we've heard so many times in ministry is that we didn't speak graciously enough. And I want to be the first to confess that I am imperfect in this area. None of us claim to be the most gracious people on earth, And I know very well that I need to grow in this area. What is notable from Paul's example to the Galatians is that he didn't feel compelled to start off with flowery language or to beat around the bush. With the Galatians, he actually got right to the point. He didn't even start off with a loving prayer for them. He started off by saying how amazed he was that they have rejected the truth. He repeatedly calls them foolish. It is only after three and a half chapters of these condemning words that Paul finally communicates what you and I might consider to be gracious speech. More than half of this book is full of his condemnation and his blunt correction of the Galatians. So as much as myself and other church leaders need to grow in our graciousness, the fact is that all of us need to grow in our humility and in our receptivity to the truth. We cannot consider a brother or sister in Christ to be our enemy just because we don't like the biblical truth they try to apply to our lives. We are a family in Christ, and we show our love to each other by speaking the truth of God to each other. So again, if you can identify the biblical truth within someone else's correction or encouragement, then you are one step closer to loving the truth. Another way, as we alluded to earlier, to help yourself love the truth is by discerning the motives behind the correction. This is what, again, we said before, and it actually forms our third point for today. 
The third way to love the truth is to discern the motives. Verses 17 to 18, we'll we'll find that third point there. Paul writes by saying, they, referring to the Judaizers, the false teachers, they eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. As we mentioned before, Paul left the Galatians to evangelize and build up churches elsewhere. He had left a stable community of believers, confident that they knew the gospel and they could build a solid church community. But with Paul gone, the false teachers had easily cast their seeds of doubt and slowly turned the church against him. They questioned his character, they attacked his ministry, they possibly said things like, Paul just wants glory and fame. I mean, he came out of nowhere, he shared a subpar message to you, and then he left to start yet another church. He doesn't really care for you. We, on the other hand, we know the full truth of God. Paul left out the entire Old Testament law, but we know that God still cares about it. We can teach you about it. We want to see you grow in your knowledge of the truth. We want the best for you. You see, the, Paul, the false teachers wanted the Galatians to follow after them. They thought that the Galatians were like a sheep without a shepherd. So they swooped in and started spreading division in the church, leading them astray. They knew that it would be too late for Paul to stop it by the time he heard about all of this. This is how the false teachers were seeking them out, not commendably. In other words, they didn't have pure intentions or pure motives. Again, Paul clarifies their motives at the end of verse 17, that they wished to shut them out so that they would seek them. They wanted to separate the Galatians from their beloved teacher so that they would have no one else to depend on except the false teachers. And if you had any doubt that Paul had bad intentions, he addresses this pretty clearly in his letter to the Corinthian church. You see, the Corinthian church had struggled with the exact opposite of the Galatians. The Corinthians were so divided among themselves because they were too devoted to different good teachers. So rather than having false teachers threaten their church, the Corinthians actually had too many good teachers such that they became proud about who taught or baptized them. Take a look at how Paul responds to their division. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 12 to 15, and in chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, Paul writes in those two places, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Again, chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. Paul continues by writing then, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted... Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. 
Paul wanted nothing to do with a claim to fame. He didn't want to be known as the religious leader with the most followers. And the reason for this is that he knew all the glory belonged to God. All the work was ultimately achieved by God. Sure, Paul had a big role to play, but God is the one who changes people's hearts. God is the one who saves. God is the one who forgives people's sins and strengthens their faith. Paul is just a messenger delivering God's truth. Paul is just a servant carrying out God's will. So Paul wanted to see the Galatians. He wanted to see the Corinthians. He wanted to see everyone else grow in the knowledge of God's word and to follow God. His end goal was not to build the biggest church. He didn't want to be the most famous religious leader where people just followed him. He wanted people to look past him, to look to God and to glorify him. That is why Paul eagerly sought after the Galatians as well, but it was in a commendable manner. It's because his motives were pure. Paul had taught and shepherded the Galatians when he was there in person, and he is now doing the same through his letters when he is away. And that comes to show how dedicated Paul was to his pure motives. You see, even when he was away, he could have promoted more fame and recognition among the locals. He was actually worried about the Galatians and their compromised faith. If the false teachers genuinely cared about the false doctrine they were spreading, then they would try to infiltrate the church even while Paul was present there, instead of just waiting for Paul to leave and then quickly sweeping in to catch the church off guard. In our church's early days at New Life, I probably thought like Paul a little bit too much to a fault. There were several times when a newcomer would come to our church And then I would suggest that they check out other like-minded churches in the area as well, even naming Lighthouse as one of the churches they should check out. And it's not because I didn't want them to stay at New Life, but it's because I cared more that they would find and commit to any good church rather than not attend a good church at all. If it happened to be New Life, then that's awesome. If it happened to be Lighthouse, then that's awesome as well. I have since learned to keep my suggestions to myself and instead work a little harder at keeping newcomers at our church. We can save our suggestions to check out other churches until after we've tried our hardest to be a good fit. So when someone encourages you to act on God's truth or when someone corrects you with God's truth, then ask yourself this. What do they have to gain by questioning my behavior? I guarantee you that your church leaders and I would much rather never need to correct you with God's truth. It is never fun to say, let's sit down and chat. Have you considered how your actions line up with the Bible? Those conversations are the hardest ones to have. They are the least fun, and they typically result in people leaving the church disgruntled. Why would we, as church leaders, choose to compromise the size of our church by challenging you with God's word? Why would we jeopardize our church's apparent happiness and joy 
by risking a church discipline case. We don't do these things because we're looking for fame or glory. We definitely don't do these things because we want more people in our church or more money from you. We only challenge you with God's word because it is the right and best thing for you. We know that your true happiness, that your true joy comes from living according to God's word. And we know that some people may leave our church, others may betray us, but at the end of the day, God is worth following and worshiping. The challenging part about this is that the false teachers would claim the same thing that Paul and we would be claiming. Everyone says that they're looking out for your best interests. Everyone is claiming to tell you the truth of God. Who then is right? Who can be trusted? If you're having a hard time discerning the motives of others, then consider our last point from our passage found in verses 19 to 20. Paul concludes our section there by saying, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul starts here with another illustration. He calls them children, those that he cares about so dearly as a parent would care for his child. But he takes this illustration one step further. He compares himself to a mother going through labor pains for her child. Paul is simply saying that his heart is in so much turmoil, so much pain over them. He's enduring so much physical and emotional pain because they have turned on him and because their faith is in jeopardy. And he compares all of this to the physical pain of a mother in labor. But you see, all that pain will disappear once the child is born. Similarly, all the pain and emotional turmoil that a Christian leader experiences will disappear once Christ is formed in you. This is one of the ultimate goals that all genuine Christian teachers should have for their church. This is one of the ultimate goals that all genuine Christians should have for themselves. Paul had first experienced these labor pains when he brought them the gospel for the first time. <clears throat> that was when he first wanted to see Christ formed in them. Unfortunately, they received him so well, and they believed in his message, such that Paul felt like his mission was done for the time being. It was complete. He could wisely move on to the next city and depend on the young church to keep growing in the faith. But once that trajectory of growth was at risk, Paul began feeling these labor pains again. He wanted to see the Galatian church return to the genuine faith that results in becoming like Christ. The false teachers were misleading the church, turning them away not only from Paul, but also from Christ. So the fourth and last way to love the truth is to pursue Christ-likeness above all else. This explains how you can distinguish false teachers 
from true teachers who are faithful to God's word. It is not just that they throw Bible verses around, since both groups did that. It is whether or not their teaching causes you to become more like Christ, to follow his teachings, to imitate his character. You have to realize, though, that your natural tendency is to gravitate towards sin and whatever makes sense to you, not necessarily to whatever makes you more like Christ. Consider how Paul told Timothy to lead his church in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2-4. to Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. In contrast to seeking sound doctrine, your sinful tendency is to have your ears tickled. You want to be entertained. You want to like what you hear. You want to leave a sermon with good feelings and pleasant sensations. That's what it means to have your ears tickled. And in order to achieve this, you seek out teachers that teach according to what you desire, not according to what is true, to what is faithful to God's word. So it should be no surprise then that you'll often hear things from Christian brothers and sisters that you don't like to hear. No one likes to be confronted or corrected. It hurts to hear those things because it reveals our flaws and our imperfections. And yet, consider this well-known proverb from chapter 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. It is far better to have a friend who cares for you enough to tell you the hard truth than to have an enemy who lies to you because they know you will like them more. So when you encounter God's word, perhaps corporately from the pulpit or personally from a friend, you must ask yourself this. Will this way of applying God's word in my life lead me to become more like Christ? If I take action on the things that I'm hearing, then will I become more like Christ? Don't focus on how it feels to hear those words. Because if you do, you might end up looking for kisses from an enemy rather than wounds from a friend. When it comes time to speak truth to one another, the faithful friend knows that it won't be easy. You have to be stern and serious in your tone. And it's because following Christ is not a flippant thing. It's not an optional thing for the Christian. When your life is off track and your church community here sees a way to encourage you with God's word, you might not hear the most gracious tone in every word. Paul himself says in verse 20 
that he wishes he could change his tone, but he realizes that he can't yet. He needs to confront their wayward thinking first, and then he can change his tone. So at the end of the day, if you love God's truth, then you should easily avoid the mistakes that the Galatians made. They forgot how united they once were with Paul when he first shared the gospel with them. They listened to the false teachers and they incorrectly believed that Paul's motives were impure. And as a result, they accidentally embraced lies rather than the truth. The false teachers led them away from Christ rather than to Christ. What is your reaction to God's truth? Is it powerful and important enough to you that it can break through social barriers? Is it true enough to you that you would be humble and receptive when others are trying to apply it to your life? And is it leading you to ultimately become more like Christ? These are all ways that you can love the truth. Keep these things in mind so that you will protect yourself from only listening to whatever tickles your ears or sounds good to you. Keep these things in mind so that you're not deceived by false teachers. And instead, you can enjoy the fellowship of a genuine, heartfelt church community that loves you enough to tell you the hard truth. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. It contains your very word. And we know that you are truth. You do not lie. We thank you that we can study it and read it to see how you have worked miraculously in the past and to see the gospel message now in full display for us to understand and for us to embrace. We pray, Lord, for our hardened hearts, that we would not treasure the gospel wrongly such that it becomes something that we want to keep to ourselves, but instead we would treasure it rightly, something that everyone deserves to hear and needs to hear. Let it break down the social barriers that may be around in our church or in our society, and may it lead us to be humble when we encounter your word, when others are trying to apply it to our life. We share the common goal of becoming more like your son. Help us to see that. Help us to see that rather than to make our friends out to be our enemies. Again, we thank you so much that you give us the grace and the faith that we need to glorify and honor you, even in these situations. We pray all of this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.